0: what I'm going to do today, uh, as uh, Amin kindly mentioned, is uh, to give a talk about the ways in which particular ways uh, colonial past continue to haunt today's logistics. Um, And what I want to start with is something rather unexpected. Among the holdings of the British Museum, which is warehoused in their massive storage uh, among around 8 million other objects, is a carved, dark gravestone inscribed in Hebrew and dated 1333 AD from the port of Aden in Yemen. The inscription says, uh, Mayest thou rest in peace until the Redeemer cometh in the month of Tabith in the year 1644, this is in um, Seleucid uh, years, was gathered in peace to her father, the worthy, respected woman Madmiah, the daughter of Saidia, the son of Abraham. May his memory be blessed. The stone was donated to the museum, to the British Museum in 1886 by Thomas Holdworth Newman of the shipping firm Mr. Newman Hunt and Company. The stone had been brought over to Britain, however, 30 years earlier, in 1856, when it had been used as ballast for a ship sailing from India to Zanzibar and onwards to Britain. Um, I've tried to find out what ship it was, but I haven't been able to be successful. Do you guys know what ballast is? So ballast, for those who don't know, is a bit of weight that ships that are empty have to carry in order to stay mm. stable, otherwise they might list. So the shipping firm itself, um, the uh, Newman, Hunt, and Company, uh, owned whalers in New- uh, Newfoundland, uh, whaling ships, owned vineyards in Oporto in Portugal, and also traded with Mediterranean ports. Now, there's much about this object that I'd love to note here. It speaks of a long history of Jewish diasporic existence in Aden in Yemen. It bespeaks of an imperial carelessness that plunders gravestones for ballast, and it points to Aden as a significant, perhaps the most significant calling station between Europe and India. I want to say a few words about ballasts and then I shall shift to Aden itself. In his beautiful short reflection on ships ballasts, Charlie Haley recalls Joseph Conrad's obsession with ballasts Joseph Conrad, in all of his novels, told us about whether ships were either in cargo or in ballast. He was fascinated by whether the weight here of stone, later of coal, still later today, of seawater, is required to balance the ship when the ship is low on cargo. Landscapes, entire landscapes, were harvested of ballast, looted clean of sand and shingle and rock. And although ballast may speak of empty ships or of ships that have delivered their goods in one direction and are now sailing in the opposite direction with their cargo heaved to port, it also speaks of resource extraction in ways that would be considered unproductive but which are fundamental to capitalist trade. This resource extraction transformed landscapes in ways that have been forgotten. Once a ship arrived in port, ballast had to be discarded. And despite laws that prevented the discharging of stone and shingle and sand into the sea, Haley tells us that discarded ballast spawned landscapes born of displaced materials from far-flung islands. And ballast islands and hills, this wastage, ended up becoming infrastructure Uh, with these unwitting spoils of trade repurposed for building roads and railways. Today, uh, seawater is used as ballast in ships. Uh, when seawater from one geography is released in port in another geography, there's much concern about invasive species from one location being taken to the other, about this uncanny mixing of water, organisms, and pollution. And the harvesting and dumping of ballast also echoes through the dredging and land reclamation processes that transform landscapes. For example, looting the far riverbeds of Myanmar for gravel to be poured on the seabeds of Singapore, or of ancient marine topographies ripped up to accommodate ships with deeper drafts. I think ballast is crucial in thinking about shipping precisely because it reminds us that the movement of ships across the sea is not simply about the movement of cargo or about production and circulation, or at least it doesn't stop there. The ostensible routes of trade also map geographies of empire and of new landscapes, uh, of forms of labor and rule, of remade ecologies, and of course of forms of imperial hierarchy, which sees nothing in using a 600-year-old gravestone of a young Jewish woman as a weight that that keeps a ship in equilibrium. But I also want to talk about Aden. And I do so because the rise and fall of Aden, as once the most important port of the Middle East and today as a destroyed backwater, lacerated by bombs and missiles and siege, also says something about other ghostly presences of the empire and imperial forms in today's logistics. The sublime aesthetics, if uh, you guys are used to it. You see the port everywhere. But in, in fact, that kind of an aesthetics Uh, which uh, the vast ports with cranes reaching to the sky and the puzzle pieces of containers stacked in asymmetrical mountains often conjure up some sort of a rupture from the past, heralding something new as yet unseen as a kind of threshold of transformation in the character of capitalism. We hear about an age of logistics or technologies of circulation and automation that remake the world in ways that we have not yet seen. And I don't deny the awe that I feel when moving through these logistical landscapes. These, uh, the, my three lovely hosts that took me to lunch know that I was all excited like a kid about the fact that everywhere you go in Singapore, you see ports. I'm completely and totally excited by that. And whenever we travel to a port, my poor kids end up getting dragged to port tours. Um, they, they've learned to like it. Um, I, and despite all of this, and, and I also confess that whenever we fly... The only times that I ever want to sit by a window is when I know I'm going to be flying into Singapore because of the amazing view of all of the ships coming to the port and at anchor. I think it's just an amazing thing. So I don't deny that it is an incredibly awesome image. But despite the feeling of newness in this aesthetic sublime, these logistical landscapes, both at land and at sea, are actually haunted by theirs, ours, and colonial pasts. In what remains, I'll reflect on these hauntings through a consideration of the emergence and decline of ports and maritime transport infrastructures in the Arabian Peninsula and especially Aden. Whether it's route making and enduring transoceanic connections of labor and trade and war, or it is the geography of ports and inland transportation, crossroads and hubs, today's transportation sector echoes colonial pasts. Just as significant are the corporate institutions that contain logistics in their myriad forms and the violence that lubricates the functioning of these corporations. And finally, I will speak of our propensity to talk about the movement of goods and people in this enduring fiction of commodity form. I will here speak of how this pernicious equivalence between cargoes and human bodies has shaped and continues to shape our logistical landscapes. Here, neoliberalism is perhaps most clearly haunted by the ghosts of our colonial past. Now, Aden was conquered in 1839 by man-of-war ships from British governorate of Bombay, which used the excuse of a ship's uh, grounding and outrage against its women passengers to open fire on the port of Aden and eventually annex it to Bombay. By then, the East India Company had lost its monopoly on trade in India and China and needed urgently to gain upper hand in commerce and required Aden as a coaling station on its sea route from India to Suez and overland to Alexandria and then again on the sea onwards. As the city, uh, as Aden, became a crucial possession of the empire, one of the most important coaling stations in the world, and especially after the opening of the Suez Canal in 1869, Aden could easily be considered the most significant port in the Arab world east of Suez. With coal depots uh, came inland trade and railways and tramways, telegraphs and water pumps, which facilitated the movement and operation of policemen and judges, inoculation officials, and irrigation inspectors, deep into Aden and its hinterland. Aden was so significant an outpost that many a well known writer and poet earning a living as functionaries and merchants passed through there. Arthur Rimbaud, for example, the famous French poet, worked as a coffee trader and possibly gun runner uh, in Aden, lived in a house that faced the sea, but which in vast projects of land reclamation in the intervening years is now further inland about a kilometer from the sea. Those of you who live in Singapore are of course familiar with how your seafront property can shift inland without you actually ever moving. Some decades later, the great Paul Nizan, a French writer who had run away to Aden, also as a coffee trader, wrote of the transformation in commodities of trade that also transformed the infrastructure of Aden. This is Paul Nisan. Not so long ago, Aden was a coaling station. He wrote this in 1933. Oil brought with it offices, docks, the black tanks of Anglo-Persian and Asiatic petroleum. That's Burma oil and BP. And intrigues that rouse the emotions of the little potentates who have become sellers of oil and buyers of gasoline for automobiles. A little war for concessions is spreading all around, so Aden still conforms to its destiny. In Arabia, the smell of leather and the smell of oil that grows more insolent every month are replacing the smell of coffee from Sana'a and Harar. But this change of products has not changed the human uh, consequences. To extend coffee plantations, European wars have been undertaken. Vast territories have been conquered in the New World, in Africa, and in the Sunda Islands. Millions of slaves have been captured and transported to the new plantations. A revolution has been accomplished, entailing consequences incalculable in their complexity, in which good and evil are intermingled, in which frauds, warfare, oppression, wholesale massacres go hand in hand with commercial enterprise. The wisdom of nations approves of all of this scheming and contracting and forcing all this profitable slavery. End quote. This is from Nizan's Aidan Arabi, which is a wonderful read. This intertwining of war, commerce and transit, as Nizan called it, has continued. Aden was, until Britain was forced to abandon India uh, in 1947, still a major way station. And even after 1947, it was an outpost of empire guaranteeing the waning British supremacy over trade routes that brought oil and commodities to the war devastated country. It was only a bloody rebellion in the 1960s that finally pushed the British out of Aden in 1967, with 1968 being the only year in the entirety of the 20th century when the British did not have troops deployed overseas. One year in the entire 20th century, the British did not have troops deployed overseas. Over 100 years later, and in the aftermath of bloody civil war of 1994, Uh, hundred years after its conquest, Aden became once again a commercial prize. This time the conquest occurred not by man-of-wars, not by ships, but by capital. And interestingly, not from Europe, but from the global south. In 1994, first parastatal capital from Singapore, PSA, in a consortium with uh, a couple of local uh, companies, set up the port management company to run Aden. However, they were displaced by Dubai Ports World. And they were displaced because Dubai Ports World is said to have bribed Ali Abdullah Saleh a great sum of money personally. The contract that gave Dubai Ports World the control over the container terminals at Aden is said to have is said to have been secured through uh, bribes to Ali Abdullah Saleh, the now deposed uh, president deposed and killed president of Yemen. There's a swirl of rumor and a rank of stories around the port and DP World's management of it. But it has become clear that DP World, Dubai Ports World, since it took over the port, it tried to redirect port traffic to other ports it operated nearby, especially first Djibouti, although it ended up doing the same thing to Djibouti as it had done to Aden, but later to Jabal Ali port itself. So if you look on there, Jabal Ali is up here. Aden is here, and Djibouti is there. And all three of those ports were, at a time, run by Dubai Ports World. And one of the things that, in my interviews, became clear, actually everywhere that I went, was that Dubai Ports World took over ports, and then it would actually manage the traffic down, and would send, would reroute most of the traffic to its own ports, in some ways monopolizing over those trade routes. That Aden would be targeted for subterfuge is not surprising. Its natural deep harbor and excellent location make it a more inviting proposition than Jabal Ali, whose harbor actually requires constant dredging and maintenance and who access to which requires passage through the Strait of Hormuz. That Dubai ports world engaged in such subterfuge in such a brazen and shameless way and that the government of Yemen eventually withdrew the company's contract are even more of a surprise. But in that maneuvering, also, there was something of the colonial company maneuverings of concessions and contracts and monopolies wrested by force and of contracts being considered provisional as far as profit and power are concerned. And also, interestingly, DP World was uh, thrown out in the aftermath of the Arab uprisings and in part in response to major demonstrations by port, port workers and Adenese who saw it as an extremely unfair contract. So the government withdrew their com- contract and paid DP World $35 million for, to, to get rid of them. Today, Aden's port lies in ruin after the war, waged on the country by Saudi Arabia and its allies, including the United Arab Emirates. In this world of conspiracy theories, one hears kernels of truth that part of the reason for the war in Saudi Arabia's stoking of sectarian wars is is stoking of sectarian wars, but also of access to routes in the Indian Ocean for the transport of oil. This particular theory is also underwritten by a a Saudi Arabian WikiLeaks memo in which Saudi uh, officials uh, discuss Omani or Yemeni routes to the sea for their oil pipelines, so into the Gulf of Oman. Uh, And it's actually something that um, Suzanne's been writing about. uh, And we're seeing more of it today with them uh, trying to take over these Mahri ports. But as as likely a scenario is also the destruction of Yemen's transport infrastructure in favor of competing ports on the Red Sea, including Saudi's uh, Jeddah and King Abdullah ports, as well as Jabal Ali. So it is not so much that we live in a new logistical age, that somehow the workings of capital have changed drastically, but that the shifting landscape of capital and power means that the actual location for capital is different. This brass knuckles form of geopolitical economy is unsurprising given the ways in which dream worlds of strategy are imagined in layers of power. And Aden is considered not only a commercial prize, but also a strategic stronghold, not only for trade, but for military expansion across the East. In a different context, in his magnificent Moby Dick, which anybody who knows me knows that is my favorite novel. It's an amazing novel about shipping. Melville, Herman Melville, has written about how commercial whaling and conquest went hand in hand. In that novel, he writes, if American and European warships now peacefully ride in once uh, strange harbors, let them fire salutes to the honor and glory of the whale ship which originally showed them the way and first interpreted between them and the savages. So in a sense, they saw the whale ship as a kind of a uh, entry point um, to conquest, to military conquest. Much the same could be said of East India men, the ships of the East India Company. Where they went, the empire followed. The inextricability of commercial and military aims, of course, is crucial to the governance of both state and commerce and of the seas. So I really would like you guys to look at the density of those whaling maps and then look at where the U.S., all of the places that the U.S. annexed during its colonial period at the end of the 19th century and beginning of the 20th century. So the annexation being a strategic, very much tied to that commercial route. When I recently traveled on a container ship from Malta to Dubai, uh, a couple of times, I have to confess to being overwhelmed with awe for the sublime sea and with fascination for the vast behemoth of machinery carrying me and thousands of tons of goods in the sea, standing on deck. And looking out to the Mediterranean, the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean made me want to think of the sea as something eternal or transcendental or grand or beautiful. And yet the sea, the sea that we see, is made as much as the land is. It is crafted and shaped as much as the land is. For example... Underwater Cables Crisscross Seabeds, and as a fabulous new book uh, by Nicole Starosielski tells us, this geography of undersea networks contains histories of cable-laying, militarization, and economic deprivation, where new modes of spatial organization have led to the displacement of local residents, closure and enclosure of vast public spaces, and a reorganization of racialized labor regimes. It's also interesting that many of the... Uh, the landing points of the cable companies, the undersea cables, are actually places that are in contestation in Yemen itself. So the port in Mahra, for example, which we were discussing earlier, is one of two major landing points in, in Aden. There are no others. The other one being Hadida. And it is interesting that these landing points matter because, because the infrastructure of cables, underwater cables, which we often don't think about, are actually profoundly crucial to telecommunication, but also to building other infrastructures around them. Much the same can be said of commercial ports and militaries, but especially the US military, which has been incredibly implicated in this process. And this is a map of countries with other forms of military cooperation. And you can see that the concentration of the military bases tends to be around sea routes. So you will see that the Panama Canal and the important gulf and Suez canals is where a lot of this density is and of course then also your neck of the woods your global neighborhood think again Suzanne mentioned that where the military fails, deve- fe- uh, where the military fails development programs can emerge and that often in the case of imperial powers that is the one-two punch but the sovereign form of control over trade routes needs the gunship only some of the time what is most striking about the logistical landscapes and the entities that forge them is the structure and political qualities of these entities which on so many different levels seem to be haunted by the sovereign corporate form that the east india company exemplified this is where a corporation acts as a sovereign it has its own security forces it has essentially control over the land and it has its own courts and other forms of rule. so the east india company was of course Absolutely famous for this. This form is not so much about the management of resources or their allocation, but about the extension of particular regimes of private property across the the surface of the globe, and about the structuring of ownership, disposition, and exploitation through a series of legal apparatuses that even in the face of cacophonous discourses, of independence from the state or calls for small government are ultimately beholden to the body of the state, its political, its police or military force, etc. This is particularly true of varieties of corporate bodies that support shipping precisely because of the size and capital intensity of the sector. This this residue of the mercantilist era. Form, and the professional militaries that secure their free trade throughout the world, belies the standard classical economic histories of the era of industrial revolutions terminating mercantilist politics. This simultaneity of state and corporate co characteristic of mercantilism, the fantasies of free trade and laissez-faire politics, are ultimately secured by state policy. And a standing army or navy is profoundly characteristic of our era today. I can think, but for example, there are actually examples of this today where you have the privatisation of particular ports, but it happens through very specific political activities of states. So one that has nothing to do with the Middle East, but which I think is really interesting, is the port of Piraeus in Greece, which in the aftermath of the Troika's pressure on Greece, uh, it was forced to privatise it. And uh, its uh, immediate privatization was followed by uh, the Chinese taking over a substantial part of it, while AP Muller Maersk, which is a Dutch Danish company, also staking a claim to parts of it, while at the same time, the German Parastatal Corporation, it's a government corporation called Fraport Ager, taking control of Greece's air cargo. Uh, and regional airport infrastructure. So on the one hand, the Troika are saying privatize, 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 and on the other hand, it's a German state-owned company that comes and buys up all of their airports. They're not privatizing, they're just handing over upwards all of their public goods to to the Germans in this instance. It is also, however, important to recognize that a vast amount of the capital and control and colonial impulse, uh, so, so despite the fact that we have you know, the Europeans still doing this, despite the fact that a lot of uh, capital and control still emanates from the Northwest Atlantic littoral, from Europe and the US, that capital accumulation in specific regions. Sure. And here I'm thinking of Dubai and Singapore and Hong Kong and the like also actually extend their regimes of control to various ports near and far and bring with them their capital specific, bring with their capital specific modes of governance, which are often exempted from regulation. Again, for example, Dubai Ports World is a good example. Dubai Ports World has recently inaugurated London Gateway, which is a major port in the, uh, London, in the Thames estuary. And as a condition of its investment, it actually originally began denying union recognition to the landside workers. And so it had actually, there was a huge amount of struggle by the union workers. There were boycotts of ships coming from London Gateway in places like South Africa and um, in, in ports in South Africa. And there was a major court case before London Gateway was, Dubai Ports World, was willing to acknowledge unions. And so what I'm saying is that this capital travels and with it, it takes a particular regime of control. In, in these conditions, this blurred boundary between corporation and the sovereign body... Becomes even more instrumentally vague and opaque. The East India Company is, a, is in some senses, an excellent predecessor for many of the companies that have been crucial in the correct, in the construction of logistical infrastructures in the Middle East and elsewhere. Ports. Coaling stations, shipping channels, harbors, shipping agencies or factories, as they were called, military offices, and so on and so on, were infrastructural side effects of the East India Company's exploitation of the resources of everywhere they went. And, of course, these were necessary for the exploitation. It wasn't out of their goodness that they were handing these. These were necessary infrastructures for their resource extraction. It is precisely the intensity and volume of investment required to support shipping and trade that allows for the flourishing of these corporations as arms of the state. And it is, in, it's in the, and it is the infrastructure required in the colonies that leads to the development of railroads, roads, ports, warehouses, and urban expanses. What is hugely important is that the construction of these transport and logistical infrastructures is not always the job of transport and logistical businesses. So it's not always a PSA or Dubai ports world that actually builds these things. I've been struck by the extent to which the transport uh, and other kinds of infrastructure in the vast majority of the Arabian Peninsula uh, with possible exception of Yemen, has been developed as part of the processes of profit-making but by perhaps the two most important companies on the peninsula historically, what we today recognize as British Petroleum uh, and Aramco, the Saudi Arabian oil company, which started off as an arm of Standard Oil of California. In both instances, these petroleum companies had to construct cargo ports in order to unload goods required to build oil infrastructures, plants, wells, refineries, and oil terminals. In both BP's case and Aramco's case, the company's major stock owners were uh, entities based overseas as I said, California and in London. In both cases, the respective militaries of Britain and US were from the very first mobilized to defend these ostensibly private corporations' holdings in the countries in which they operated. Both these companies had larger or smaller development programs uh, in the countries in which they worked, which was predicated on improving the health and education of a population that could then serve as workers for the company, so educate them in English so that they could listen to the English foreman's orders. Both BP and Aramco's work was also predicated on a form of capitalist class formation in which the racialization of working populations, whether through importation of workers from India or through the importation of the Jim Crow racial regime from the US, allowed for maximal exploitation. And as we know, this articulation of class through race is profoundly characteristic of colonial regimes of capital accumulation. You always transform differences into race and you use that to exploit. But to go back to logistics and container shipping, if we were to think of shipping and transport and of the logistical landscapes as not the awesome spectacle of container shipping, then it would become clear that without the vast transformation of infrastructures wrought to construct an oil industry or mining in other parts of the world, we wouldn't have many of the cargo ports, rails, and road networks, and other forms of transport infrastructure in the Arabian Peninsula, which make the region an unlikely transportation powerhouse. They don't have a hinterland, the way Singapore does. So why is it that the Arabian Peninsula ends up becoming such a sort of a prize for transportation? The transformation of economic, political, social, and physical landscapes, and especially labor relations, are fundamental to the profit-making venture of these imperial corporations. As Bruce Robbins has written, infrastructure needs to be made visible in order to see how our present landscape is the product of past projects and past struggles. A final theme I would like to discuss is the prevalence of a phrase that dominates so much writing about shipping. This phrase is goods and people, as in the movement of goods and people across the borders, or the single market for the mobility of goods and people, most notably in Europe, which my country is leaving terribly. It is inevitable that one would think not only of goods and people, but also of people as goods or human cargoes. We've heard today uh, moving excerpts from people who've put everything at risk uh, in trying to get themselves and their families to safe havens, whether in Europe or elsewhere. Much has been said about ghost ships, uh, ships that are uh, on the sea with, um, with uh, human passengers who have been abandoned at sea about rickety, unseaworthy vessels, and about fishermen and ship's crew who risk livelihoods and managerial discipline to rescue migrants. We've also heard about the racialized hierarchies of migration that result in the locking up of African migrants in the holds of ships in conditions that recall the Middle Passage. So in uh, what we hear again and again about ships uh, drownings in the Mediterranean are often of African passengers who are locked in the hold for sa- safety, safety of the people who own the ship and who drown when the, when the ship breaks down. But although it is clear that these equivalences between goods and people are specious and contradictory, the very fact that they are made today says something about commodification of bodies and persons. This fiction of humans as labor, the fiction of the commodified human person, and I mean here fiction in Polanyi's sense, that the dead bodies washing ashore in Europe simultaneously confirms and changes, challenges. The racially incendiary infrastructures of migration aboard ships are set up in such a way as to always guarantee a reserve army, not only of unemployed, but also of the unprotected, to create populations that can be pushed and pulled and threatened, not only with the economic weapon, but with the forces of deportation, ejection, or exclusion. So how do we think about these bodies, these human persons, escaping the ravages of war, climate catastrophes, neoliberal rapacity and expropriation in the service? of the same processes of capital accumulation that requires the building of infrastructure. I somehow go back to the amazing poetry of Trinidadian poet Derek Walcott, in which he wrote about the sea as history, and and which I actually use as as the opening of my book. He writes, where are your monuments, your battles, your martyrs? Where's your tribal memory, sirs? In that gray vault, the the sea has locked them up. The sea is history. And I think that that's, in fact, this recognition that the sea is history, but also that it is a multidimensional space in which it is made from grounds up and from up to the bottom is what we need to acknowledge when we think about these logistical landscapes, that there is a history here and the history is the haunting of colonialism.